Hello, listeners. This is Cheryl Gross Glazer. Welcome to Altered Mobility, where we talk about publicly available transportation, spaces, the ways we get around, and what surrounds us in the public sphere. Here in this episode and the next, we have a little two-part series turning to the history of Moynihan Train Hall in New York City, the who, where, what of the grand retrofitting of an old post office facility. And before we go uh, to that, instead of having a moment in equity, in this episode and the next, uh, we're going to have several moments uh, throughout the episodes, and we're going to just... Uh, have some short quotes, a little discussion um, about the writings of Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, for whom Moynihan Train Hall is named. So putting into context our equity notes, I do want to prepare you, give you a little uh, warning, uh, <laughs> because uh, Moynihan's views on family, on equity, um, even in some ways on race, are not what we today would associate with um, most writers and commentators who are concerned with equity. His statements were controversial in his own time, uh, and, and they remain so. Um, they're going to sometimes seem outdated, patronizing, or offensive to many. Um, but I want to defend him at least to some degree, because he didn't avoid difficult issues. He studied them, he was active in trying to find solutions, and uh, like all of us, he was a person of his own time and the thinking of his own time and his own personal experience in terms of how he framed issues and offered solutions. So Moynihan uh, had great doubts about the concentration of power in the federal government, and he was also distressed about what he saw uh, as he became a more, a more powerful individual in government and more well-known. Um, in the 1960s, he was very concerned about the breakup of the African-American family um, in terms of traditional marriage and child raising within that construct. He was also very concerned about Democrat, uh, the Democratic Party's government welfare policies, and he believed those policies were encouraging the disintegration of family structure. On the other hand, what we're going to see is, is that Moynihan believed in government as being part of the solution. Not the entire solution, but not abandoning government as a piece of the puzzle. He certainly didn't advocate defunding government agencies. Uh, so during this era of the, the Cold War of prominent tyrannical governments, he also felt that it was important to point out the importance and features of democracies and the right to free speech in particular. So our first quote is the from Moynihan, the principal objective of American government at every level should be to see that children are born into intact families and that they remain so. And this is from Moynihan's famous report in 1965, which we're going to cover later on. And we'll go into Moynihan's personal experience that this grows out of because uh, in these two episodes, we are going to 
uh, dive into five, maybe you could call them six parts, and Moynihan's life is going to fall smack in the middle. So a brief outline. One, a brief history of the original Penn or Pennsylvania station in New York City and its destruction. Uh, two, a brief history of the building in which Moynihan train hall is situated and its original purpose. Three, getting to Daniel Patrick Moynihan himself, uh, whom we have this train station named after, and who was he exactly? Uh, four, how Moynihan Train Hall came to be built, and that's going to be a big part of this. Uh, five, a tragedy intimately connected to the realization of that long-delayed dream. And then, sort of as an epilogue, we're going we're going to see what what comes after. Uh, drinking my coffee today. And it's really good. I do a mix of this this farmer's market coffee that I get that's made by this, this one guy and his family. He goes down to Guatemala and I forgot to bring the bag with the name of it. Anyway, but I'm going to do that tomorrow for our next episode. I'm uh, taping the next one tomorrow even though we're dropping it in a, in a couple of weeks after this one so Moynihan station is pretty much anybody calls it the official name is Moynihan train hall is quite the recent addition to New York City completed at the close of 2020 so really just about a year ago um, and if you've ever gone to Penn Station across the street. If you've ever, if you use that station for decades, uh, you know how much New York has needed an intercity train station that looks like a New York arrival should look, and where you don't feel like an afterthought when you wait for the train. And we'll talk about Grand Central Station in, uh, or Grand Central Terminal, as it's officially called in other episodes. But that station is only today serving commuter trains, Penn Station, and now Moynihan Train Hall serves the Long Island Railroad, New Jersey Transit trains, and all of the long-distance intercity trains that go all the way west, south, north to other cities and parts of the country. So a very, very brief history of the original uh, Pennsylvania Station. We could go into detail, but we're not going to today, uh, and its destruction. So many, many years ago, the Pennsylvania Railroad built this grand train station across the street from where Moynihan Train Hall sits today, and above where the current Penn Station sits, where uh, Madison Square Garden is. And that Penn Station opened in 1910. Uh, so this was the era of great subway expansion in New York and the expansion of public transportation all over the U.S. Uh, the entry hall of that Pennsylvania station looks from photographs very much like um, a similar area where you walk into Union Station in Washington, D.C., that very grand outer entry hall. Mm. Drinking this good coffee. love it when I have like a really good cup that hits the sweet spot of what you like. Um, anyway, uh, the photographs show that similar kind of uh, grand space with story, soaring 
ceilings that glitter with architectural intent, money and gilding. And another place where you might see a similar ceiling is in the main reading room of the Boston Public Library. In the original Penn Station, that ceiling was 148 feet high, and we have an article with photos in the show notes. Unlike Grand Central, at Penn Station, there were many staircases, and that's something we'll talk about in a Grand Central episode. But now, looking at Penn Station, there were many staircases, and it was the station was famous for these. Remember, this is way before the Americans with Disabilities Act, way before um, people really thought of that. Um, the train hall can be seen in these photos as, as well. It can be seen much better in a film uh, that a New Yorker writer, Ian Volner, pointed out in an article about the new Moynihan train hall. And Vo I'll say this for Volner. He either knows his films and could pick this up out of his hat, or... Uh, he had a great idea to search for something like this. In any case, he points to this 1955 movie, Killer's Kiss, that is a kind of a paint-by-numbers film noir, and it's an early work of Stanley Kubrick, so perhaps some film buff uh, Volner knows uh, pointed it out. But anyway, I watched the movie, and it is a great way to see the original train hall so the scene shot in the original Penn Station in this 1955 film, they're easy to find because they, uh, they frame the movie. You see, you see these shots in the first scene and in the last minutes of the film. And I would say if you're only going to, you can just Google it. You can see it for free. I forget, you know, where I saw it. It might have been YouTube. Anyway, but the better scene, if you only have a few minutes, uh, is, is the final scene for seeing it. And if you've ever been to Moynihan Train Hall, you will feel almost transported uh, back to this original part of Penn Station uh, in watching the scenes from the movies. These... These scenes only heighten my respect for the architects and planners involved with Moynihan Train Hall because they so well capture that feeling. Uh, the designers, engineers, architects, project managers managed to capture that space without creating a replica. Uh, gone today are the cheap lockers shown in the film. If you ever traveled uh, intercity before the age of uh, terrorism becoming a concern. You maybe are familiar with those lockers. I, I once traveled uh, when I was in Scotland and kept most of my stuff in Edinburgh and then traveled up north and a week later got my stuff. Gone also uh, from Moynihan Train Hall are the staircases that, that prevented uh, people with disabilities, but almost anybody with luggage uh, easily using this intercity station. Uh, but what we do have in Moynihan Train Hall from that original space, as shown in the movie, is a very practical station in which people can move about and find their way. We see a similar glass ceiling, though less ornate. Uh, we have very much sense of height and grandeur in the new station in a city where one generally feels crowded in. Uh, we have that industrial architecture that was used in that similar space and, and very good looking, I think. 
And for the grand entryway, you'll have to visit other stations from the era of the original Penn Station, um, because that certainly is not is not a part of Mo Moynihan Train Hall. So the original Penn Station was demolished in 1963 amidst. Um, the outcry of some local architects and celebrities, but that destruction shockwaves created the modern historic preservation movement. It certainly was um, a big firecracker for whatever was starting at the time, and which led to laws that protect historically important landmarks and neighborhoods. There was a lot of picketing at the time, uh, and the picketers included Jane Jacobs, who fought to preserve many neighborhoods. And the Bowery Ball, I am just mispronouncing right and left here today. I don't know what's going on. Maybe I have to drink more coffee. The Bowery Boys podcast covers the rise and fall of Penn Station very well. And I'll quote from, a new, from the New York Times coverage of the 100th anniversary of Penn Station, which was in 2010. And I quote, The terminal became widely known as a monumental welcome to the nation's most bustling city, but its grandeur gradually began to fade. Upkeep was expensive, and the station's pink marble developed a grimy sheen. The rise of the automobile stole away much of the railroad's business, and by the middle of the century, so I'll go out of the quote for a second, when we're seeing this film clip from Killer's Kiss, back to the quote, the station owners had sold development rights to the masterminds behind Madison Square Garden, end quote. So Penn Station is demolished, and we get instead an ugly barely utilitarian Penn Station that's underground with Madison Square Garden, also ugly, in my opinion, on top. And the, the Penn Station that we have, you know, for 50 years, more than 50 years, is, uh, it looks like a temporary holding place. And it looks like a place where you're just like, ugh, it's an ugly way to wait. It's an ugly way to come into the city. Um, and if you're not from New York, you don't follow American sports, uh, particularly basketball, you might not know what Madison Square Garden, or as it's usually called, the Garden, even is. This is an arena where the, the New York Knicks basketball team plays. Having won their ch last championship about 50 years ago, when my sister had a high school boyfriend who watched every game. Uh, it's also a spot for concerts, very famously Billy Joel concerts, and some notable political meetings in U.S. history. It's not an attractive uh, building, and it has its own fabled history, and the Bowery Boys podcast, which goes into New York history, does a really good job on that. So we have this ugly, dingy, dirty, underground pan station serving Amtrak, the Long Island Railroad, and New Jersey uh, transit passengers ever since the destruction of this grand but faded uh, Pennsylvania station was destroyed. There are staircases here and there and other remnants of the old Penn Station, uh, but these are, are not many and you have to know where to look for them. Moving on, another sip of my coffee. 
Mm. Okay. <laughs> it is getting colder, but it's still good. Let's go to another Moynihan quote. Everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts. And this quote is from an op-ed about the success of a social security commission that had previously been on the brink of failure, but that actually pulled through um, very Biden-like, if you think about the infrastructure bill. Uh, this, ap this appeared in the Washington Post in January of 1983. Uh, it's an equity quote, though broadly, I would say we can't address equity if we don't acknowledge painful facts and we don't uh, allow for differences of opinion and we uh, in some way can refrain from dismissing the drawing of those different conclusions, many of which we disagree. Civil discourse must be based on truth and respect. So back to our history, after 1964, Penn Station Underground, it's between 7th and 8th Avenues in New York, between 31st and 33rd Streets, very close to the subway station at 34th Street, but not right under it. And when you cross 8th Avenue, uh, what was the building, and is the building there that was renovated uh, to become Moynihan Train Hall? It was uh, the James A. Farley building. It was the main post office for the city of New York. Uh, that post office still operates out of part of the building. And this large edifice was built as an architectural complement to the grand original Penn Station and located across the street, across uh, 8th Avenue. Like the original Penn Station, it was also designed by McKim, Mead & White, the famous Bow Arts firm, which itself deserves some episodes. The building was known as the General Post Office Building until it was renamed for Farley in 1982, Farley having been the Postmaster General in the 1930s. And I will say, just like some other renamings in New York City, no one ever called this building across the street from Payne Station the Farley Building. It was always still known as the Post Office Building or the General Post Office. And this building, this, uh, this Post Office Building, was built, like Penn Station, right above the tracks. And what made this building so attractive to Senator Moynihan and others when they sought to revamp... Uh, the entry point and exit point for people using New York trains um, is that this new train hall would utilize existing infrastructure. infrastructure, so it would make it much cheaper way to do something good for the city. Now, cheaper, yes, but still not inexpensive. And we're going to move on now to a significant part of this two-parter, which is a brief biography of Senator Moynihan, and after that to the monumental task of getting anything like a train station constructed uh, in New York City. So who was Daniel Patrick Moynihan that we have a name, uh, a train station named after him? So we'll go a little bit to shift to our equity uh, as we discuss Moynihan. And this is a quote from the 19, very famous 1965 report 
uh, whose title was The Moynihan Report, The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. And I quote, The American wage system is conspicuous in the degree to which it provides high incomes for individuals, but it is rarely adjusted to ensure that family as well as individual needs are met. Almost without exception, the social welfare and social insurance systems of other industrial democracies provide for some adjustment or supplement of a worker's income to provide for the extra expenses of those with families. American arrangements do not, save for some income tax deductions." End quote. And if you ever saw clips of Moynihan speaking or you heard his voice in a recording, or you're fortunate like me to actually have heard him speak, but you don't. Uh, but you don't know much about him. Then his biography may very well come as a surprise. So if you heard those clips or saw him as an adult, you know, as this establishment figure, um, Moynihan appeared to be a man to the manner born, someone born with a silver spoon in his mouth someone who had uh, that Harvard acceptance letter, that teaching position invitation in his crib. Uh, see, he seemed to be a man very comfortable uh, at the upper crust of society who had never experienced a hard day in his life. Uh, but actually, this could not have been further from the truth. Daniel Patrick Moynihan was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in 1927, and his family moved to New York City while he was an infant. His father worked for newspapers and wrote advertising copy, but he left uh, the family when Moynihan was 10, plunging the family into poverty. And this is a very important set of facts to understand, to think about, contemplate, uh, when we think about Moynihan and his controversial opinions about how to support families in poverty and black families in particular, uh, whose New York City neighborhoods were by the 1960s racked by poverty and family separation. And Moynihan grew up in that reality, or he felt he did. Um, there, there were some differences there, so I think that's important to understand as well. But he really felt like he understood that reality of growing up poor in uh, what he would have called a broken family. And his writings and speeches show how sincerely he believed uh, how monumentally detrimental are uh, such things as parental abandonment and the lack of two committed parents for a child. And one second, taking another sip. Mm. Okay. Uh, Moynihan said once in an unusually frank comment about his boyhood, and I quote, I grew up in Hell's Kitchen. My father was a drunk. I know what this life is like. End quote. According to a New York Times article, Moynihan went from living in a nice suburb, you know, and a to a point where he can remember, and you know, so he's he's above five or six at this point, right? And so he goes from a nice suburb, from a kind of stable family. I suppose his father is uh, his his alcoholism is getting worse, 
And he moves from this nice, stable, uh, you know, kind of Ozzy and Harriet uh, background to them being plunged to a poor, unstable life in an impoverished neighborhood. Uh, and after his father left home, Moynihan never saw him again. So there's no reconciliation later. There's no um, moment of understanding and forgiveness. And I, I think you really see it when you um, you read Moynihan's writings and, and you hear about what he accomplished in his life. So in terms of a New Yorker's view of the world, Moynihan spent most of his youth only a 10 to 20 minute walk away from Penn Station and from two of the busiest subway stations in New York, 34th Street and 42nd Street. So he could easily travel from his home to anywhere in the city and indeed to anywhere in the world. So our next quote is uh, from Moynihan's 1986 book, Family and Nation in which he advocated that the government should encourage uh, what was known as legitimacy, meaning a birth to married parents. And I quote, if the informal sanctions of society will not enforce the principle of legitimacy, let the state do so. Hunt, hound, harass, the absent father is rarely really absent, especially the teenage father but merely unwilling or not required to acknowledge his children's presence. So again, and I end quote, and again, you really feel um, the way the times in which Moynihan grew up and he was an adult really thought about what a child needed. Uh, we don't even use this term legitimacy anymore in most uh, civil discourse. So his idea that you needed the parents you were born to instead of some kind of stability, uh, whatever stability, whether that's one adult or a whole family but without married parents, that was kind of uh, a bridge too far for Moynihan. Uh, he firmly believed that equity meant giving children a solid start in life and that that stable family would equal two parents married to each other. Now, in an instance of poetic justice, as a boy, Moynihan worked as a shoeshine boy at the original Penn Station, so it would have been a place he was very, very familiar with. He also worked uh, at one point as a stevedore in Manhattan, so think on the waterfront, uh, and he worked for stints at his mother's bar. Uh, Moynihan got into City College of New York, and I just want to say this is at a time when it was very difficult to get into City College. It was kind of this um, free Ivy League kind of place. It wasn't an Ivy League college, but it was extremely difficult to get into, and it had very high standards at the time. Uh, and I'll say for my father, getting into City College, and he was uh, more of Moynihan's time, was he, it was an accomplishment he was always proud of. Um, so while Moynihan is in college, he does his, his uh, freshman year at City College, 
uh, World War II breaks out and he joined the Navy. So he didn't actually stay at City College. He did officer training at uh, Tufts University and then he went back there and he graduated from there. He then received a master's degree from the Tufts Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and he went on to get a Fulbright scholarship to attend the London School of Economics. And from then on in his life, so he's in his 20s now, uh, Moynihan was either working in some way related to government or um, at, in, in the, <laughs> going to an academic institution as a student or teaching in academia. Those were his two, uh, his two foundations of his life, uh, government or academia. In the 1950s, he started out in a staff role on a New York City mayoral campaign and writing speeches for a gubernatorial campaign. Uh, then he got his Ph.D. in international relations from Syracuse University. Um, and afterward, he went to work at the Department of Labor in Washington, D.C. He worked his way up, and in Renaissance man fashion, he developed an interest in uh, the design of office space and also in architecture. These interests would affect Moynihan later in his successful efforts to transform Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington and to employ uh, this large main post office building, the Farley Building in New York, to have the idea to modernize and enlarge uh, Penn Station. I'm going to summarize uh, in very nutshell form the roles that Moynihan served in and his controversial, some of his controversial positions. But first, taking a sip of coffee. really hitting the spot today. I wish, I wish, you know, when I was a kid, we had uh, these movies that were called Sense Around and the seats would shake or, you know, something would happen so you could kind of feel the action in the movie. Um, and I think the movie Earthquake or one of the Earthquake movies had that. So I'm thinking of that now as I drink my coffee that you could get the taste of it because it's so good. Mm. Okay. Uh, so summing up uh, Moynihan's career very, very quickly. You could write books on this, and people have. Uh, Moynihan served in both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations as an assistant secretary of labor for policy, planning, and research. And it was in this role that he wrote his ever-controversial 1965 report entitled The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. Liberals criticized it. Some called Moynihan a racist. And conservatives embraced what I would call a mischaracterization. Uh, again, where is my uh, brain-to-mouth going today? Okay, conservatives embraced what I would call a mischaracterization of the report. Um, Moynihan does see, you know, he does say in this report that government is part of the problem. Um, but, but what conservatives said was baby, basically throw out the ba baby with the bathwater. That since it's, it's part of the problem, it, government doesn't have a ro at all a role in the solution, right? Um, but Moynihan disagreed. He just felt that government um, had a role, but that it needed to uh, change that role. Um, in some ways, 
that the report became a Rorschach test because most people didn't didn't read the report. It's kind of like the Mueller report. Most people haven't read the hundreds of pages of the Mueller report, but everyone had an opinion on it, and that that opinion was kind of uh, a way to see what what are someone's uh, political leanings. Uh, this is very much uh, the same when uh, Moynihan's report came out. Uh, it wasn't widely read, but it became very much a test of how people saw American society and how they saw government. And I would say that Moynihan's critics were correct, that Moynihan defined the problems of what was going on with the African-American family with, and with poverty that was affecting uh, African-Americans. So his critics were correct that, that Moynihan defined those problems within a white patriarchal framework. No question. He saw marriage and the nuclear family with daddy as the breadwinner as the goal. Um, he didn't envision that a child could have a stable and loving situation that was not necessarily found within that structure. On the other hand, he was upfront in his criticism of the U.S. as a whole and government policies in particular for creating and enabling uh, continued disparities that were a legacy of slavery, and he acknowledged those disparities um, as a legacy of slavery. Um, and that in the 1960s continued, and continue this to this day in many respects, to leave behind black families and black communities. Uh, where he diverged from conservatives is that Moynihan saw a role from, for government, um, but where he, he differs from the liberals is that he didn't think that government was the entire answer. He saw it as a piece of the puzzle. And he saw the situation, families, that families and communities were critically important to the development of a child and the place of government is to, to buttress, to support um, a, a positive structure in which children can thrive. In that way, uh, we can see him as similar to Hillary Clinton, but different because he comes from an earlier time. So this report becomes very controversial. President Johnson basically abandoned the report because it became a political hot potato. So going from the mid-60s into the 70s, uh, after Moynihan uh, left government, With the Johnson years, he goes to Harvard as a professor, uh, but he returns to government a few years later, this time to serve President Nixon, and he's an assistant to the president for domestic policy. So he's now in the White House and not at an agency. He's bumped up soon thereafter to be counselor to the president, and he's later appointed by Nixon to be ambassador to India. Nixon actually invited him to become the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, uh, but he, he did not accept that offer from Nixon. He did accept it from Ford, President Ford, uh, who succeeded Nixon after Nixon resigned with the Watergate scandal. In 1976, uh, so we're now coming into... Uh, 
the time when President Carter is running for office, uh, Moynihan is running for the U.S. Senate, and he was successful. He became the uh, senator from New York State, and he served in that capacity from 1977 to 2001. And although Moynihan was a Democrat, he wasn't always in agreement with the party line. Uh, Moynihan opposed the death penalty. He opposed the flat tax. He opposed the Gulf War. Um, but he was also not uh, in favor of abortion, and he opposed President Clinton's attempt to, pair, uh, to pass health care insurance legislation. As far as health care is concerned, it wasn't that um, Moynihan didn't see a role for federal legal intervention. He saw a role for the federal government in terms of health care and health care insurance. Um, but he didn't believe it was possible to pass any meaningful reform without bipartisan negotiation and compromise. Uh, after serving in the Senate, he returned to academia, and he went back to his old school to Syracuse University to teach. And I am leaving out so much here because there is a ton that Moynihan was involved with, uh, which we're not going to discuss during this episode. Um, but I will say this in summing up about uh, Moynihan's biography. He was regarded very much as a public intellectual. He was a prolific writer. Uh, he was someone who admitted when he didn't have the answers, but he didn't shrink from acknowledging or dealing with difficult problems. And he could certainly be seen uh, when, it, when it came to different issues as sometimes being open-minded and sometimes being very much closed-minded. And he very much did not fit neatly into either the liberal or the conservative camps. And he worked hard even um, with his political colleagues across the aisle to find solutions. And now we'll come to another Moynihan quote. This also from the 1965 report. Three centuries of injustice have brought about deep-seated structural distortions in the life of the Negro American. And I, I believe that many, many of us would acknowledge that this is truly the case. Uh, even um, almost 50 years, six, almost after 60 years uh, after this quote. Many would argue with Moynihan's finding of the problem and possible solutions uh, in encouraging family stability, encouraging father uh, participation in terms of staying with children. Um, but what has happened is that the American family has become much more what Moynihan found in 1965 was going on in the black community. I think obviously this would very much upset him. Um, so instead of meeting families where they were, even in 1965, and, and much more in terms of where they are now, Moynihan's idea was to return them to this Ozzie and Harriet ideal that he himself lacked in childhood. And one could argue with that, but I don't think one could argue with finding that um, instability is good for a child, that, that stability in some way or another, however it can be found with two parents in a suburb or in the middle of a city or in a small town when there's poverty, that, that's, that stability is important for any child and love.
Ah, yummy coffee. So back to Moynihan Train Hall. We're at that ugly, underground, overused, crowded Penn Station under Madison Square Garden. Uh, we're across the street. We have the beautiful Farley General Post Office building uh, erected in 1910. And from Michael Kimmelman of the New York Times, he wrote on January 14th, 2021, uh, when, when looking back at you know, the Moynihan train hall is being opened and he's looking back and I quote, the building was, uh, the train, the post office building, uh, I quote, was built during the early 1910s as an architectural bookend to McKim Mead and White's gloried station. This was a time when post offices and train stations were conceived to be palaces for the people and when mail was transported by rail. Farley, and this is a crucial point, getting back to the quote, sits over the end of several tracks that serve Penn. The slightly Rube Goldbergian idea of repurposing it as a train hall was first floated nearly 30 years ago by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the U.S. Senator from New York, and the most architecturally engaged and sophisticated public official since Thomas Jefferson. He understood the historic station was a kind of civic barometer. Senator Moynihan wondered whether Farley's mail sorting facility with its access to railway platforms under 8th Avenue was a potential restorative for lost glory that kept things architecturally speaking, in the family. This being a big, complicated infrastructural proposal, years passed and various attempts to make something happen foundered." End quote. So Plan 1, as I'll call it, was conceived in 1992. So we're talking 30 years ago. Uh, and it seemed in 1993 so pretty quickly to be on solid ground, such that it was revealed to the public. The plan was to use the general post office building to bring back the grandeur of the old Penn Station. In 1993, Senator Moynihan and then New York City Mayor David Dinkins, uh, and also the head of Amtrak at the time and the managing company head of Penn Station, all expressed enthusiasm for a plan to transform this post office building for a train station. Only then Senator Alphonse D'Amato objected to the plan because of its high cost, and he was a Republican, but we'll, we'll see what D'Amato kind of goes along here. So to digress for a moment, uh, I actually met Senator D'Amato in person. Uh, it was a big birthday. I was with my husband and my parents, and we ran into Senator D'Amato at a fancy Washington, D.C. restaurant. Um, he was with a rather young woman. Um, his marriage was openly, very publicly estranged. Um, and despite my parents never in a million years uh, going to vote for him, they introduced themselves as his constituents. And D'Amato, I have to say, he never missed a beat. He was in over-the-top charming mode, very happy to meet them. 
spent a few minutes talking to them, very relaxed. We never felt like he was rushing off. Um, so anyway, I did, I did work on Schumer's campaign when D'Amato was unseated, if you will. But I do have a nice memory of that moment. So the plan was this 1992 plan um, and it seemed to be, you know, moving along quickly, was to finish the renovation by 1999 at a planned cost of $350 million. Uh, $315 million. Okay, we're continuing that mispronunciation trend today. So if, if you know New York and you know projects like this in New York, the original cost is never the final cost. The original completion date uh, that's proposed is never met. Uh, and the plan, uh, but the plan that was envisioned uh, seems kind of close to what actually came to, bit, to be many years later. At the time, Penn Station was seeing 300,000 commuters and intercity passengers. So a total of 300,000 people going in and out during each day. Uh, but despite the collaboration, the agreement, and even the promising enthusiasm of then-President uh, Bill Clinton, the plan, no surprise, runs into trouble. And I'll take a sip of coffee before I tell you about that. Mm. Uh, first, it wasn't clear quite how enthusiastic uh, President Bill Clinton was in terms of translating that early support into actual dollars. But we do have this plan that, that we have a lot of agreement on, and that's a big first step. So here's a, a brief description from a New York Times article written in May 1993 by David Dunlap about what that original plan was. Shops would surround the new concourse on three sides. Along the fourth side would be Amtrak's ticket windows, above which would be a restaurant with a semicircular glass wall overlooking the space. A balcony would encircle the concourse with, much more, uh, with more shops on the north and south. Passenger and ticketing areas in the existing Penn Station that are now used by Amtrak would be turned over to the Long Island Railroad and New Jersey Transit." End quote. So there were some congressional opponents and there was certainly not a close relationship. Remember Clinton's health care debacle that, that seeded the not great relationship between Moynihan and Clinton. And I would say in terms of personality you could see where they wouldn't exactly be soulmates. In 1995, Moynihan and his now fellow advocate for the project, co-senator, uh, Republican Senator D'Amato, so remember they're now they're the two senators from New York, uh, already had gotten an, an earmark, so specific money for this specific project to put in, put in a federal bill uh, that, so this money would be available quickly and allow the project to get going. So they're cobbling together the funding we have then uh, Republican Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. He's thrilled to get this money for the city, for this big project. 
We have then New York Governor Pataki, also Republican, committing a nice chunk of change of state money. So we have all these Republicans, except Moynihan, and they're all in favor. And these are what we would call today moderate Republicans. Julie Ani was not the kind of crazy man he was to become. Uh, also in 1995, we have the creation of the Pennsylvania Station Redevelopment Corporation. Uh, it was created by the Empire State Development Corporation, a New York, government, New York State government agency. And it was created for the purpose of establishing an entity that would be responsible for the purchase and renovation of the post office building. Because remember, uh, the ownership rights uh, have to be transferred in some way. Now we're in 1997. It's four years, uh, it's uh, five years since this light bulb moment. It's two years after the practical step of pretty much figuring out funding. We have our core cast of elected characters uh, together, uh, President Clinton uh, and the two senators, Moynihan and D'Amato. But now we have D'Amato, whose nickname was Senator Pothole, by the way, for his very excellent constituent service and his really eye on, like, sort of practical things on the ground that people wanted. He's on board, no pun intended. And why was he on board? Uh, he envisions a grander plan. Uh, one... Uh, only now possibly starting to come through for, to fruition, fingers crossed as we speak, that would link the Long Island Railroad, uh, which comes into the west side of Manhattan, the west side of Midtown, linking, making a link to Grand Central, which is on the east side of Midtown, uh, thus to give Long Island commuters easy access to Manhattan's east side, and it would which would cut at least 15 minutes and a great deal of aggravation uh, from a commute from a Long Island standpoint of getting from the island to the east side. Uh, that would um, boost the convenience of li living on a Long Island. And you say, why is this so important? D'Amato's a senator for the whole state, but his, the, the core of his support and the beginning of his support, you know, his peeps, so to speak, are uh, the folks on Long Island who are commuting in and out of the city every day. And I'll say this, even 25 years ago in 1997, this was an old dream waiting to come true. This is not, you know, a new idea, even in 1997. Uh, and D'Amato was quite the powerful senator at this time. He was chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, um, and it was a key position for getting this project off the ground. It's also important that he was a Republican and he had good relationships with fellow Republicans. Uh, uh, New York Governor George Pataki, he's, he's enthusiastic, and as we said, Mayor Giuliani. At this point, according to uh, that earlier Politico article, we have truly unbelievable foot dragging and basically lying by another key player, the U.S. Postal Service. Um, they own the building, and this goes on for years. So according to the Politico uh, 
Politico article. I think I actually didn't discuss it earlier. It, it's, it was written by Mark Dunkelman. Um, and it's in the show notes, like everything else. Um, uh, this article quotes Moynihan as describing the station project as, and I quote, a fat dolphin in a sea of sharks, end quote. The article also describes the state of much of the post office building at the time in the 1990s, uh, which the post office, the postal service was claiming, oh, this is such uh, a precious building. It's so necessary for us. And I'm going to quote um, in a second a, a little more of a long quote about the state it was actually in at the time. Remember, it was built in 1910, so at this point this, this uh, station is already over 80 years old. We've had a lot of changes in American society and transportation that have taken place. Mm. Great coffee. Okay, and I quote, Rooms postal officials were refusing to relinquish were essentially abandoned. A huge workshop was being used to bang the dents out of mailboxes that postal officials were importing into Manhattan from around the region. Days later, so uh, I'm not sure what that refers to in the article, but getting back to the quote, the Daily News wrote in a scathing editorial, of the 115 loading dock bays, nine are occupied by dumpsters or compa compactors, another nine by personal cars, and 20 more by tractor trailers sitting there for at least 24 hours, end quote. And I won't go into the layers of bureaucracy, but, you know, in terms of uh, those bureaucratic players we're talking federal, state, and city agencies, as well as the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, uh, which itself controls airports and ports. Uh, we have private developers, land use developers. We have three transit agencies, each prominent large U.S. transit agencies with their own rail systems. The New York City subway has, you know, rail going down there, the Long Island Railroad and New Jersey Transit. And everyone is pushing for their own priorities. And this is what Moynihan is talking about. And we're going to finish this episode here in 1997. There's cautious optimism, but there's already no chance of meeting that original deadline of a 1999 completion. We'll pick up, pick up next time with President Clinton still in the White House, Moynihan in the Senate, no construction begun on the train station, uh, but with key people in important places on board, so to speak. And let me just say, we are not looking at a straight line ahead. There's still over 20 years to go. So thank you so much for listening today. Contribute your, th your thoughts on social media. Uh, get links to the resources in our episode notes at our website. And have a wonderful two weeks. Uh, so glad to talk with you, to share my great coffee with you. And it, whether you're sleeping, fighting insomnia, or uh, taking a break from work or on your commute, uh, working out, whatever. Uh, have a wonderful day, and I'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.